If you've tuned into this cold open late, what you've missed is Keith singing a brand new hit called Elimination Station, some discussion over the North Region Coach of the Year, and uh, other things that we deemed unsuitable for broadcast. That's true. Well, we have plenty of things that are suitable for broadcast, so we probably should get started. Why don't we do that? Let's have a podcast. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. Largest division, smallest schools. Hey, I don't know if you know this. We started with a 32-team playoff. People are complaining about the final four teams in another division. We just had three weeks of playoffs to get to this final four. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com, and my co-host, Keith McMillan, and I are a week and change away from calling our 19th Stag Bowl together. Keith, how would Frosty Westering have introduced you? He would tell me I'm podcasting against my best self this week. And Pat, you and I are making the big time where we are. That's so true. Maybe even making it more big time than some might like. But uh, while last week we were pointing out how historically non-competitive those second round games were, this week we have some much more entertaining contests, including a game that hinged on some fourth quarter heroics. There was a switch at quarterback that, uh, just like we all suggested two weeks ago, had no negative impact on his team's performance. Oh, yeah, uh, a last second field goal and another game that was at least in doubt in the third quarter, if not the fourth. Not bad, but I feel we need to start with the purple elephant in the room. Regardless of what week you might argue it should have come, perhaps the most intriguing coach's decision of the year was revealed on Saturday afternoon when Luke Borman got the start at quarterback for Mount Union rather than D'Angelo Fulford. And I know Keith is waiting to speak, but before he jumps in, as the person who wrote the story that we published on Tuesday evening reporting the bench warrant being issued for Fulford's arrest for his failure to appear at a court hearing on Monday morning, I and we at D3Football.com stand by that coverage, which was factual, properly sourced. All appropriate efforts were made to secure comment. Not coincidentally, for sure, Fulford and his legal team were in court the next morning to rectify the matter. And then Saturday, coach's decision to sit Fulford, which was something that uh, could certainly have been done two weeks earlier. Well, look, it didn't look like a very good week for Mountain Union, but going with Poorman at quarterback on Saturday changed the calculus. It took the focus off the other quarterback's legal missteps and put it back on the rest of the Purple Raiders, and they responded with their best half since their 2015 Stag Bowl appearance. They put up 49 points in the first half, 70 overall, got a relentless rush from the front half of their defense, got a six-touchdown, zero-interception day from Poorman, quarterback who had competed with Fulford for the starting job in the preseason but was making his first start this year. Mountain Union put the focus back on its team, and the team delivered. Everything they did on Saturday was the right thing. Leading up to game day, decision-making was a little more hit or miss. Let's boil this down to its simplest terms. Speeding tickets and red tape with the Department of Motor Vehicles alone are not a story. Happens to the best of us. There's no story if there's no arrest or if there's no active warrant in Florida or no missed court date. We've been doing this 18 years, Pat, and I can think of only one other time that a starting quarterback for a playoff team has been arrested. So when it happens to the quarterback of the most prominent team in Division Three, it's news. Mountain Union is free to handle it however it sees fit. If it wants to make a brief statement and otherwise keep it in-house, that's their call. We, the public, are not necessarily owed an explanation. This happened, though, on November 17th. The quarterback starts playoff games in round one and two, and as far as any outsider can tell, there's no discipline. There's also no explanation, no statement of support, no, he's a good kid who made some missteps, but we stand behind him. Pretty much just, we're aware of it, and business as usual. If that's a course of action, 
And then it turns out the player was supposed to be in court but was not. You can't really be angry when those facts come to light and you've left the public a bunch of blanks to be filled in. The public fills in those blanks and there's nothing to contrast the news with until several days after the fact when the court matter is resolved. And on Twitter and in local media, the quarterback talks about a special relationship he has with a six-year-old boy who was in a car accident. Every word of it is probably true, but it falls on deaf ears because it mostly seems like damage control or image rehab. Meantime, the coach just doesn't wake up the morning of game day and decide to go with the second quarterback. In the postgame, reporters were told the quarterback switch was a coach's decision. That's made a couple of days before the game, not right before kickoff. Somewhere between the Case Western Reserve game, the missed court date, and the Frostburg State game, Fulford is benched, and remember he was not benched for rounds one or two, and Poorman gets the nod. The bizarre part is that this worked out great for Mountain Union. It got to internalize an us-against-the-world mentality. It got to see its second quarterback play so well that it should be confident it can win a national title with him. And now, UW Oshkosh, which probably has to outscore Mountain Union anyway, as opposed to shut it down with elite defense, it won't know which quarterback it's facing. What a turn of events. It didn't have to happen this way, but it did, and here we are. Completely unrelated, other than the color of the jerseys, is the recurring question of why Mountain Union is traveling to UW Oshkosh for the semifinals. Uh, spoilers. I guess if you only get your Division Three football news on this podcast, yeah, those teams won on Saturday. Uh, I bet I've answered this a dozen times on Twitter, both before Saturday's game and afterward, but here's why. First off, of course, you know, people cite that Mountain Union's been ranked number two all season. UW Oshkosh is number three. The NCAA doesn't take our top 25 poll into account. It never has. Uh, the criteria that the NCAA uses to select and seed the teams is also applied in this situation. Oshkosh has been the higher seed all along through this bracket. And this is for two reasons. Um, Division three results, uh, they're a wash, both unbeaten. I'm, I'm going through the selection criteria now. Common opponent is a wash. Strength of schedule significantly favors UW Oshkosh. And if the committee even thought this might still be a tie after that, they have had the previous season tiebreaker on the books as a criterion since 2011, which says that in an event of a tie between unbeaten teams, the committee can use the previous year's playoff performance as a tiebreaker. Yeah, Mount Union won this tiebreaker a lot, but after losing in the semifinals last year, it no longer has the advantage in that category over everyone, and Oshkosh wins out there too if necessary. I think the last season's results tiebreaker is overstated. I don't think it comes up as much as we discuss the possibility of it coming up. But UW Oshkosh also had a win over a regionally ranked opponent, and Mountain Union did not. So all five main playoff selection and seeding criteria were either a wash or favor Oshkosh, and that's why the game is in Wisconsin and not Ohio. And frankly, for all the grief we gave the selection committee about how it arranged the bracket, it put the right 32 teams in the field and it got the number one seeds correct. And three number ones and a two advance to the final four. We have no idea, of course, how much any of this comes up. It, it could well be that last season's results is just shorthand for you remain a high seed until somebody beats you. But uh, holding the tiebreaker is also important in case of a tie, which is what a tiebreaker does. We will, of course, talk about all four quarterfinals and take a look at both upcoming semifinal matchups. That and our game balls coming up in just a moment. This edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by FanRays. And what FanRays offers is hassle-free, risk-free handling of your online apparel store. No longer do you have to sift through boxes of gear to fill someone's order. FanRays handles it all, including shipping to your customer. And your program gets its share of the profits. Now your store can be open year-round, not just for two weeks. And you don't have a bunch of printouts or emails or handwritten slips of paper sitting around your desk waiting until you have enough for a bulk order. They'll handle it all for you at thefanrays.com. 
it's time for game balls. And Keith, my game ball goes to UW Oshkosh running back Dylan Hecker, who scored five of the six touchdowns in Oshkosh's 41-20 win versus Wartburg. Four of them came on the ground, another through the air, as Wartburg just didn't have much of an answer for him. Even in a game where he was sometime forced to grind out yards on the ground, there was more than one instance in which Hecker caught a pass and had all sorts of crazy room to run along the hash marks, uh, each side of the field, by the way. Three catches for 106 yards and a score, 15 carries for 71 yards, and four scores for Hecker in the win. I bet you could find people who watched that game who thought Mitch Gerhards did more damage running the ball and Sam Mankowski did more than both through the air. But I'm going to go special teams for my game ball. Brockport punter Eric Yeager pins Delaware Valley at the three late in that game. The defense gets the ball back at midfield, and the offense drives to set up Brett Renzi's. And the offense drives to set up Brett Renzi's game-winning field goal. That was considered, but the game ball has to go to Bryce Wilkerson and the UMHB punt return unit for breaking a 10-10 deadlock between two of the best defenses in the country, and for the zigzagging highlight of the week that allowed the Crusaders to stay alive in defense of a repeat championship. Yeah, so let's talk more about that game. Or uh, We definitely got the game we were expecting. We got the semifinal, uh, quarterfinal we deserved. Uh, a defensive battle that was toe-to-toe for 45 minutes until the crew broke it open with that punt return that you mentioned a moment ago, Keith, and then the uh, pick six that followed by Chris Brown. Even though, ga- though the game wasn't over at that point, it really was for all intents and purposes because scoring two touchdowns in Mary Harden-Baylor in one quarter is a pretty daunting task. The crew won despite two turnovers and rushing for minus 16 yards. Here's Coach Pete Fredenberg's take. No, no, we uh, we, we knew we were going to have a, a, a tough time uh, running running the ball. They, they just load the box. Uh, you really have to throw the ball fast, and if any time we held it any length at all, uh, he was fighting for his life. And uh, Carl, and I think he did a good job of holding on to the ball. And, the two turnovers, um, and, and you know, again, the thing that that uh, felt like that we needed to get the ball in the hands of, of Bryce and the receivers and let them try to make a guy miss. Uh, but we knew it was going to be a long deal because defensively they're pretty good. Defensively, both teams are pretty good. We expected that, and we got, for the most part, the game we expected. Just uh, 252 yards of total offense for St. Thomas, 143 for Mary Harden-Baylor. Think about that. They they won a semifinal game with 143 yards of total offense. Actually, a quarterfinal game. I, I said that facetiously earlier. And That's I didn't true, want you did, to, uh... and, and I let it seep into my subconscious because <laughs> it there been. are folks out there who think that should have been a semifinal game. Certainly, it was a semifinal quality matchup, but uh, yeah, this was quarterfinal week. Uh, I'm glad you're keeping this in there because now I'm... Uh, now I'm rambling about how wrong I was. Back to the point, though, uh, the 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 St. Thomas defense, plenty to be proud of, right? They they limited Mary Harden Baylor to ten points on offense, as Mary Harden Baylor limited St. Thomas to ten points as well. Uh, both sides uh, tied at ten at the half, and then the Bryce Wilkerson sixty-seven uh, yard punt return comes at the eleven. 22 mark of the fourth quarter, and then less than a minute and a half later, Chris Brown steps in front of a Jacques Perra uh, pass and uh, takes that 33 yards back for a touchdown. And suddenly it's a uh, 24-10 game instead of a 10-10 game. And the way Mary Harden Baylor's played defense, not just in in this round, but in all three rounds of the postseason, just 16 points allowed, uh, There, there's pretty much, uh, once they go down two scores in that game, almost no chance uh, that they come back. A.J. Finene kind of put the capper on this game with a brutal, I don't know, maybe not brutal, but a 
vicious? No. A hard-hitting sack, let's just put it that way, of Jock Para. Here's some thoughts from A.J. Finene after the game. No, we didn't feel no pressure. It was more like, uh, you know, we knew, we knew what we had to do. That's, that's what it came down to. We came out there second half and just executed well. You know, Coach talked all week about how big their offensive line was. Some, somebody's cooking some good food up there. How, how, did, how were y'all able to put that much pressure on the quarterback? I don't know if it's good enough, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, their size, you know. I felt like what we talked about as a defense that, you know, nobody attacked them how we were going to attack them. You know, the game plan was just attack them, you know what I'm saying? They weren't going to see how, how we were going to hit them with it. And, uh, I mean, they had the size, but we wanted to be physical, and that's, that's what happened. Talk about that last sack. Look like you just shot out of a cannon. Uh, I don't know that they watch the film, but they just put a tight end on me. Uh, they, it was a single block, you know, no disrespect. Um, they just had a tight end. They doubled to 96, Jason Adams. They gave me the one one and I took the language. Go into detail about that. I mean, as soon as you hit him, like, you know, you got right up and, I mean, it was kind of, you know, the game's, the game's in your all's back pocket. I mean, that was a huge... Was yeah, a huge yeah, it was a big game. Uh, I mean, a big play, you know. Uh, it always goes to our, our secondary, you know. They, 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 they had a good coverage, which allowed them to hold it on a little bit longer to give me time to get there. Six sacks for St. Thomas on Saturday. Seven for Mary Harden-Baylor. And I thought across the country in in the four semifinals, or maybe we'll call them quarterfinals uh, because that's what they are. Uh, I thought across the country, the the defensive lines and especially defensive ends who who put pressure on quarterbacks had some really outstanding games. Mountain Union, the, the case was the same. Obviously, the St. Thomas defense played well. But really, really, the Mary Harden-Baylor defense has been a cut above and uh, was excellent getting after Jacques Perra on Saturday. All right. I apologize. I, I've clearly taken that uh, two or five steps too far. So my apologies. Although four semifinals, that'd be kind of cool too. You're, like a, you're picturing like a like a hockey thing, and then do you have a mini game if they split the first two games? Or do they just play each other, like a round-robin tournament? Yeah, like a, a best of three in the semifinals. All right. We, we're getting off track. Yeah, it's, cr- it's crazy talk. Uh, other... Let's see, another quarterfinal. Yes, it's a quarterfinal. Uh, uh, between Brockport and Delaware Valley, the uh, Aggies of Delaware Valley narrowed a 28-7 deficit to tie in the first five minutes of the fourth quarter, turning uh, what looked like was going to be a runaway into the best finish of the quarterfinals. A timely three and out for the Delval defense, onside kick recovery, a, pen- uh, a key penalty or so against Brockport, and maybe not all those in that order. But uh, Delaware Valley also started hanging on to the passes it was dropping earlier in the game, and that made it a tie game with nine minutes to go. But Brockport won at 31-28 on a 33-yard field goal by Brett Renzi as time expired. It was actually Renzi who missed a field goal right before Delaware Valley takes over. At that point, it could have made it a 31-7 game. Instead, it remains 28-7. And then Delaware Valley just, I don't want to say lights itself on fire because that, that's, that doesn't that's sound a, pleasant. That's a bad but thing, right? They, uh, they got fired up. They... I don't know. It's like um, you It's like you put it into Google Translate and then translated it back, and that's what it came back as. Well, here's why you don't do cliches. Just say what you mean. Delaware Valley started playing well uh, all of a sudden, and uh, they turned a game really within about five, a little bit more than five minutes of game action, turned it from a uh, 28-7 game to, to 28-all. And all of a sudden, if you're watching one of the other games, they were only staggered uh, – by one hour on Saturday. So if you if you happen to be not at one of those games, but watching from home or watching from work or on your phone or whatever, all of a sudden you had to start paying attention to this 
uh, Brockport Delval game because we knew we were looking at potentially you know a finish for the ages. And it did come down to the the final seconds, although it wasn't all that dramatic. That that punt that I mentioned pinned Delval in. They got a, a first down or two, and uh, instead of uh, they took over with about three minutes left, and instead of driving for a game-winning score, they didn't even really get close to midfield. They had to punt it back to Brockport. Brockport took over, and after a couple of uh, completed passes from uh, from Joe Germaniero, <laughs> say his name for me. Germaniero, I believe. Germaniero. Um, a couple of completed passes uh, from him will... Uh, they, Brockport pretty much made up its mind that it was going to give Renzi another chance to uh, kick the game winner, ran it to center it. Uh, Delval used both of its timeouts, but the field goal is true. Brockport moves on, survives the uh, the the real serious comeback attempt by Delaware Valley. And I think the the thing for Delval is, you know, certainly they go out in the round of eight. They're not happy with that, uh, especially you win 12 games and then, you know, the same thing for Wartburg, won every game this season. Um, and then all of a sudden you lose a game. You know, you're certainly not happy with that, but I thought both DelVal and Wartburg uh, represented themselves well and, and sort of can can uh, leave this tournament with their heads held high. So the East is given its first semifinal team since 2006, and we'll find out on Saturday whether it also earned its first semifinal team since 2006. That's because Brockport travels to Mary Harden Baylor. It's the late game of the two semifinals, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Central. What fascinates me about this matchup on Saturday is that the Golden Eagles will give the Crusaders a much different look than uh, than St. Thomas. Instead of eye backs and multiple tight ends, Brockport is four wide or three wide and H back, rarely on their center. They also won't huddle up and get, and they'll get the play by all turning in unison to the sideline, look at the, the, the sideline for the play, then turn back to the line of scrimmage. Against St. Thomas, Mary Harden Baylor's defense showed ridiculous speed and pursuit. Crew defenders identify plays, they broke on the ball, they tackled well. They'll have to do that this week, but it'll have to come from the defensive backs because they'll be charged with that task because Brockport really can't block UMHB's de- defensive front. So they'll ask uh, Joe Geminiario to get the ball out quickly, and that means uh, defensive backs will have to tackle and keep those eight-yard gains from becoming 58-yard gains. I'll see if I can uh, copy the previous one and kind of paste it over that one. Um, would you describe? I, I used to be saying it fine. <laughs> it's actually it's just as spelled. The, the trick, the tricky part for me is spelling the damn thing. Um, it's not that difficult to spell it, uh, and it is written as spelled. Germanaria. Germanario. Yeah, what you describe about the Brockport offense is not all that dissimilar to a, a lot of teams. I think the crew have faced in the ASC. Uh, Germanario will do it better than most, and. Goodness knows I got a lot of good beat feedback from coaches, including playoff coaches, about the Brockport offensive line. But they'll have to be completely on top of their game to keep Fenene and the rest out of the Brockport backfield. I think you're right. I, I think the seven sacks against St. Thomas, and St. Thomas generally uh, one of the better offensive lines in the country, one of the bigger offensive lines in the country as well. To, to put seven sacks on the Tommies means that Brockport's going to have uh, its work cut out for uh, itself offensively up front this week but they also pretty much just five linemen they may use that that fullback h-back type character to uh to to help a little bit but it basically means i think the ball is going to come out quickly this week we had a 
question on Twitter from Twitter user Friar Tuck Deluxe. If you're looking up Friar Tuck Deluxe, leave the E off. I'm not going to spell the whole thing, but it just took me twice as long to say it this way. Will having an all-east bracket backfire in the semi, or will Brockport represent their region well? That's kind of one of the questions of the moment about this game, for sure. Yeah, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I don't I don't know if um, it would mean the, Brock, the, the all-east bracket backfired necessarily. If, uh, if if Brockport comes to Mary Harden Baylor and loses by two touchdowns or three touchdowns, you know, I think Brockport is as good an East team as we've seen. Um, in a, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is some of those Wesley teams. And honestly, the year the years run together for me when Wesley was a South team, a South region team, and when it became East region team. I guess it would be a few years ago when yeah. they joined the NJAC, but. Right. Um, We've seen teams from the eastern part of the country, let's say, play pretty well in in the semifinal round. So it's not impossible. I think Brockport is um, at that level, and I I think they have a big opportunity this week. They'd probably be better off matched up with one of the other two teams. I just think Mary Harden-Baylor defensively this season is is outstanding. Somebody actually said to me on Saturday that they're better – defensively this season than they were last season and that's the same defense that that uh held Oshkosh to one score in the stag bowl to help it win the national championship so to answer the question i don't i don't know how much brockport's result this week necessarily reflects on the way the bracket was built i think we're mostly in agreement here that the bracket probably could have been mixed up a little differently certainly there are some folks who may or may not be hosts on the, in the huddle that think uh, this East bracket was the greatest thing than sliced bread. I think it's neat, and I think DelVal and Brockport deserve to be high seeds in this tournament. I just don't know if we needed to get St. Thomas and St. John's and North Central out of the tournament so early and Harden-Simmons and Linfield by the way it was put together. It was That was done because um, it, it, we basically went back to saving money with uh, with the tournament arrangements, and that's fine. It worked out this year that DelVal and Brockport deserved it. I think Brockport's a really good team, and they have an opportunity not just to to do something special for their program this week, but also to represent the East Region well. Sliced bread, just for the uh, just for the record, first produced in a commercial way in 1928. So, if it's the best thing since sliced bread, it could be less than a century old much like the Division Three football bracket. Uh, so, Keith, I was able to watch the first quarter or so of the Mount Union-Frostburg State game before having to switch focus to some of the 1 o'clock games. But in that time frame, like, Frostburg didn't look good in any phase, offense, defense, or punting, and uh, didn't get outside of its own 23-yard line while I was watching. Yeah, it took about... I hear it. I hear it now. It took about four or five possessions for Frostburg to get untracked. And by that point, Mount Union was already uh, on the on the scoreboard a couple of times. So uh, certainly Frostburg needed to get off to a faster start. I thought, though, that they didn't necessarily let it get in their heads like the big deal for teams. We've talked about this years before on the podcast. The first time you go to Mount Union, some of your players, maybe not all of them, but some of them are going to be. Oh my God, we're playing at Mountain Union, and then Mountain Union scores first, and then oh my God, we're down by seven to Mountain Union, we're down by fourteen to Mountain Union, we're down by twenty-one to Mountain Union. I don't know how much of that was a factor for Frostburg. They sort of just got blitzed early on, and then they found their footing a little bit. They scored twenty-four points in the the second quarter, 
Only problem is they couldn't stop Mountain Union, so they were down 49-24 at the half. We talked earlier about Luke Porman. Uh, wide receiver Justin Hill, he let defensive backs know he's going to be a problem. He had uh, six catches, three touchdowns on Saturday. But Frostburg actually got some offense going once it fell behind. Connor Cox bought himself some time to throw, found um, Sergio Andino and, and a couple of those other wide receivers for some big plays, at least one blown coverage. And, and I thought Mountain Union's defense uh, let up off the gas a little bit once it got a big lead. I thought, though, the real story was Mountain Union's four-down lineman and the fifth player, uh, a safety that they put up on the line of scrimmage assigned to disrupt the tight end. I thought those five players made the difference. The Purple Raiders mixed in a few blitzes by linebacker Charlie Deere and had Frostburg State uh, quarterback Connor Cox running for his life. Mountain Union defense had seven sacks, nine tackles for losses, and caused five fumbles, four of which it recovered. It was a relentless defensive performance, something that honestly reminded me of the greatest Mountain Union teams. It has me thinking that UW Oshkosh is going to have to have a great game up front to be able to deal. Relentless defense, but still that 24 points in the second quarter. How'd that happen? Yeah, Sergio Andino. Yeah, he made at least one ridiculous twisting catch along the sideline to set Frostburg up inside the five-yard line. And then uh, there were just really some some nice plays made in, uh, in the secondary, and you could see why Frostburg was a playoff team. He just wasn't on Mountain Union's level at all. And to demonstrate how much not on their level, the final score is 70-37 in favor of Mountain Union. In the UW-Oshkosh-Wartburg game, Wartburg scored first, had some pounding drives, but uh, Oshkosh always had an answer, including three consecutive answers in the second half as a 20-20 game became a 41-20 game en route to the 41-27 final. Warburg had a couple of short drives set up by short fields, but also drove 67 yards in 15 plays, went 80 yards in 10 plays, and went 76 yards in nine plays to score. Warburg was definitely game and had it tied in the second half, as you mentioned. Then Brett Casper hit Sam Minkowski for 41 yards and Hecker for 59, sandwiched around a bruising running game. But even down two scores, Warburg drove inside the 15 with a chance to make it a one-score game again, but failed on fourth down. Oshkosh took over and added another touchdown and kneeled it out inside the five, winning going away. Basically, they wore Wartburg down, and, and they just have so many ways to attack that I don't think they can be completely shut down, even this week, by Mountain Union. And yes, I expect angry tweets. Yeah, I was told there would always be angry tweets. So looking at the Mountain Union-Oshkosh game, Keith, I'm wondering what Oshkosh is going to do in this game with Hecker and with the offense that it couldn't do last year in the Stag Bowl versus Mary Harden-Baylor. Reminder, they basically had almost nothing that worked after about the first quarter. Is it just enough to say that Mountain Union 2017 is not as good defensively as UMHB 2016 was? I don't know if we have to draw a correlation between those two teams. Certainly the, the Mountain Union defense that dismantled Frostburg State for the early part of that game on Saturday was as good a defense as I've seen. But I think the the big difference is that the, the Titans line is going to be unlike anything the Purple Raiders have faced in the playoffs. As you get deeper into the postseason each round, the, the competition jumps up a level, and I think that's now true this week, both for Mountain Union, which hasn't played anyone as good as, as UW Oshkosh, and for Oshkosh, who hasn't played anybody as good as Mountain Union. So I don't think penetration will come against uh, that UW-Oshkosh line as easily as it did this past week against Frostburg State, although Mike Vidal and Elijah Barry will probably spend some time in the Oshkosh backfield. Like taking handoffs? That'd be cool. 
<laughs> Adam Hoshi is actually the uh, guy who impressed me the most this week from the Mount Union defensive line. He spent some time anchoring against double teams, yet he was quick enough and uh, penetrated enough to recover two fumbles. Yeah, I guess if I think about it from the other direction then, if Frostburg was able to score 24 points when the game was still somewhat in doubt in the first half, then Oshkosh with a better quarterback and a better running back ought to be able to score a little too. Yeah, the real real problem for me is not whether Oshkosh can score on Mount Union, but can the Titans' defense deal with Justin Hill, Jad Ruth, and the rest of the potent Mount Union offense? Yeah, great question. Uh, we know Oshkosh coach Rick Cerrone knows his defense was tired this week. Here's his take from their postgame. We won three playoff games right now in convincing fashion. It was a rough one today because, uh, you know, Warburg came ready to play. And I think we were a little tired physically. And uh, we're going to definitely rest here because it's going to be a dogfight again. So physically, I didn't like the way we were, came out. So I, I think that's a problem with the coaching staff right now is we're just, we normally aren't practicing as much as we are, but. We're so young on D, we got to get as many reps as we can. So that's got to change here in the next five days because we got to get we, we got to be fresh. Keith, there's a lot to prep for when facing Mountain Union. Even if you know who the quarterback will be, how do you do all that and still give these guys some rest? Well, remember, at this point in the season, practices are already shorter because you're past daylight savings. You don't have that much time outside. Guys are studying for finals or getting close to that, so you have to give them their time to, to perform academically, especially if you're uh, expecting to be gone most of the week uh, in Salem. And the way you get around it at, at this point in the season, especially if you feel like your defense needs the repetitions but they're, they're tired, is just got to give them tons of mental reps. And I know that's a cliche, but you, you go over, you give them their, their tendencies, um, which is what the other team likes to do. So you basically have that game plan done, um, very early in the week, Monday, Tuesday, at the latest, guys will get their tendencies, which is um, you know what they like to do on certain downs and distance. Then you may add like your blitz packages or certain things that you practice later in the week. But basically, you put everything in while guys are in the classroom. You take it out into the field and you walk through. And then maybe you pick up the pace by like Thursday, you want to jog through. And then Friday, they'll walk through again. But basically, you want them to see certain formations and things that they'll have to deal with in the game on Saturday, but you don't want to wear the guys down. You pretty much at this point in the season skip conditioning. If you lift still during the week, you're, you're supposed to be lifting during the season only to maintain. You're not supposed to be trying to build strength. So you either you either scrap the lift or you just get in there just to, to get your body uh, active, more or less. But you, you cut down on all the extracurricular stuff, basically, and you give them uh, their mental reps. Just in general for this upcoming week, a reminder that this week's games are on ESPN3, so check your login, make sure you've got one, find one if you need one. Uh, semifinals are also where official video review comes into play, which adds an extra layer of calculations that Division Three coaches aren't necessarily accustomed to making, certainly not on an every week basis. So let's see, uh, Keith, this week, uh, more coaches' challenges won or lost? I think the coaches actually forget the first time they actually have challenges they can use. And because these games are on TV, you, you know, it's TV timeouts and challenges that they have access to. I'm going to go with 
uh, more challenges lost because even if they remember they have a challenge, they're not used to which situations to to pull out and and correctly uh, challenge a call. I think so too. I, I think you also think of the extra layer that you don't really have is you don't have good replays in the booth to look at to help you make that decision. Whoever coach, whatever assistant coach is going to be the eye in the sky on that is going to have like two angles to look at at most and maybe not have them in a timely enough manner to make that work. Yeah, very dissimilar from the NFL replay process that we all get used to watching on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, more Brockport punts out of bounds or Dylan Hecker lined up in the pistol? I'm going to go with Hecker lined up in the pistol. As you mentioned earlier, Pat, uh, they find ways to get him the ball. And Oshkosh, they're just very creative offensively. If you haven't seen them play uh, and this is going to be your first time, you'll enjoy it. Uh, unless they're scoring on your uh, favorite team's defense. Yeah, I guess my point about Brockport punts out of bounds, obviously, is uh, even St. Thomas did as much as it could to try to avoid punting to Bryce Wilkerson and wasn't able to do so on Saturday. I don't know how many times Brockport will punt. I don't know how many times Brockport will punt out of bounds, but I suspect that that's going to be a key part of their game plan once again. More Mount Union quarterbacks or more Mary Harden Baylor quarterbacks? Ooh, I'm going to say this is a wash or a tie. I think Mary Harden Baylor is pretty set with Carl Robinson the third. Uh, although at points during the season they've used uh, three different players under center, at least three, right? Kyle Jones and T.J. Josie, who's now back at wide receiver, and Mount Union. Whichever quarterback they go with, they do seem um, pretty consistent. They stick with that quarterback unless it's a blowout. They may uh, bring in another guy to take some. Uh, uh, one or two snaps in a game, but not necessarily a, a uh, big deal. So I think whether it's Poorman or Fulford, and that decision may already have been made, but I'm not personally aware of it. Um, I think they're going to stick with that guy the whole game. So one quarterback on each side. More consumed bratwurst or barbecue? Uh, having been in a press box in both Texas and Wisconsin, I could say these things are both present in both boxes. Uh, I think the barbecue is a little more popular. I'm going to be honest. The barbecue is awesome. The barbecue is awesome. Also, the barbecue is really good. I love bratwurst. I'll be in. I'll be in bratwurst territory. Uh, I won't be in barbecue territory this year for the national semifinals, but uh, I will be missing the barbecue. I'm pretty sure. I mean, you kind of can't go wrong. All right, so we're on the quick hits or misses. Uh, let's just go game by game here as we look back at which of our Friday predictions were crickets and which ones were misses. And I hope you enjoy your dinner of crow. I guess it's best tasted raw. Pat gets a quick hit for predicting Oshkosh 42, Wartburg 20, with the real final score 41-27. The analysis was salient too. Uh, too much speed and too many weapons to account for. I thought that was a good analysis and your score was close, so I gave you a quick hit. For, uh, for that one, everyone else gets, uh, I don't know, a fractional hit or a miss. I like those quick hitters. I like to throw the quick hitter. Good. Uh, the entire six-man panel predicted a Mountain Union win, but we all get a miss since nobody had the margin of victory even close. Pat, you and I had the widest margins in our picks at 14, but we had uh, 35-21 and 31-17 Mountain Union over Frostburg State. We were way off Mountain Union's total of 70 despite the considerable precedent of late season games and Mount Union scores that high. Yeah. In retrospect, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I, I thought that um, there would be some combination where Frostburg could 
keep the Mountain Union offense off the field. And then I have to think, well, how would they do that? They would do that with the running game. They're not going to run against Mountain Union. I, what was I thinking? I missed that. I think also if you'd seen the Week 11 Mountain Union game against John Carroll and then the, the 21-0 first-round game against WNL, even though it was in the rain, and then last week they got to 45, you didn't necessarily see the 70-point explosion coming, although, again, we've seen them do it so many times at this point in the playoffs where they just uh, dismantle some poor 12-0 and team. I guess it's it's all because Frostburg State lined up in the end zone for the national anthem. Yeah, I find that hard to believe that that made that big a difference. But uh, who knows? So the analysis was pretty spot on in Mary Harden Baylor St. Thomas as a special team score mattered, a freshman quarterback struggled, and defense reigned supreme. Pretty much things we all touched on in our quick hits. But Ryan Tips picked 24-14, and the final was 24-10, so he gets the lone quick hit for that one. And I don't think anyone gets a hit for their Brockfort-Delaware Valley pick. Ryan and Adam Turr had one-point games, but had DelVal winning. I had 31-21, which was kind of close. Uh, Frank Rossi was even closer. He had a six-point margin, but 20-14, to 14, so we were all off. We all get a quick miss for that one. Join us again this coming Friday for our semifinal picks and a couple sentences of analysis. Don't forget to add yours in the comments or tweet them at us at uh, D3Keith or at D3Football if you want to uh, send yours to Pat and not me. Actually, I think on the Twitter with the 280 characters, you could send it to all six of us. That is a fine point. Oh, wow. Would you want to do that? Uh, That would be Wally Wabash, Adam Turr, at News Tips, and Frank Rossi. You, you, You would certainly have enough characters to do that. Do you actually want to include all of us on a tweet? That's probably something you should take under advisement for yourself. Yeah. If you do all six, you may get in a long conversation with at least one of us on the panel. I'm just saying. <laughs> you, 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 you'll probably end up with a lot of notifications, yes. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. So, Pat, on Sunday, I filed my Gallardi Trophy vote. I like to hang on to it until after the quarterfinal round, especially when so many of the players are, are still active. In the postseason, you want to see what what those players do against best competition. So uh, eight of the Gallardi Trophy nominees made the playoffs this season, even though uh, Austin Brunig for North Central uh, did not play in North Central's two playoff games. Eight of the ten were on playoff teams. Uh, When I made my list, uh, separate from seeing the nominees, uh, a lot of the same people who eventually made the final ten were on it, which was good to see. Uh, it, may, it means that the tr- either uh, either I'm picking the right guys or the, the J Club and the, the trophy committee are uh, are seeing the right guys. Pat, uh, who'd you vote for? Well, um, I similarly, as I was actually procrastinating uh, writing my notes for this podcast, did my uh, ballot as well. Um, I'm assuming and uh, under the impression I'll be part of the Glory Trophy show again this year, so I'm going to abstain on talking about the top of my ballot because I don't want it to affect you know any perception of how the show might go. So, uh, But you can ask me again on the final podcast, or we could talk about it on the Stag Bowl broadcast or something like that. I'd be glad to talk about it at that point. All right, that's fine. You want to know who I voted for, or you want to just keep it moving? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, if, if you're interested in telling us, yeah, tell us who you voted for. Yeah, I, I don't mind. Uh, I voted for Brett Casper. I thought that um, on the field, 
you know, he, he deserved it. He's certainly um, one of the quarterback of one of the best teams in the country. The numbers are there. He's um, got the the leadership qualities. And then I'd really forgotten about this until we went back and uh, and read the president letter and the letter from the coach, which are always uh, the part of the Gallardi Trophy uh, nomination process that I find most interesting because I find out a bunch of things about the players that I didn't know. I'd forgotten that he was big in the um, adopting a player in, in through the Be the Match program and end up uh, he was the match for uh, for a young girl and uh, they sort of have adopted her. I don't remember all the details of the story, but I will say that Be the Match program was in at least three players. Uh, community service thing, so I, I think it is really uh, catching on. The um, the whole process of that and, and the the way that that thing has grown has been really impressive over the course of the last several years. Um, now I'm kind of working from memory, and Andy Talley, of course, is not a Division three head coach, so I might get some things wrong here. But uh, Andy Talley, Villanova coach, right? And this is how this program started, and it's gone spread to lots of places. That basically, I would be surprised if there's anybody at uh, in a Division three football program that hasn't heard of it. In reading through that information, Keith, is there anybody else you've gained more interest in through the course of that? Sure. I mean, you see the nominees and you jot down a list or there's some guys whose names pop out. But as I went through all the information, the the player that stood out to me that I moved up my ballot the furthest was uh, Nick Holcomb, the wide receiver from Wisconsin lacrosse. And here's why. Take a look at this, uh, the way he finished the season in the last five games. Now, most of you probably know, or some of you probably know about his five touchdown game uh, in the last week of the season against River Falls. But here are his last five games, 11 catches, 95 yards, and a touchdown against Wisconsin Whitewater. Then against Oshkosh, Oshkosh, the team that's still playing, 15 for 190 and two touchdowns. Uh, then against Platteville, also a team that was in a playoff hunt, seven catches, 138 yards, two touchdowns. Stout, a team that beat St. Thomas, five for 98 and a touchdown. And then the final game against River Falls, 11 catches, 253 yards, five touchdowns. That's against uh, some of the best teams in the country, in the best conference in the country. What a way to finish your season career. Uh, the season, he finished 80 catches, 1,400 yards and 20 touchdowns. And uh, like everybody in the Gallardi Trophy packet, had some uh, community service or, you know, the coach felt really strongly about his work ethic, that sort of thing. But really it was those numbers against the quality of teams uh, that really stood out to me. Didn't he do that with uh, two different quarterbacks then too? If you say he did, I believe you. (laughs) Yeah, Tarek Yegi went out in the Whitewater game and Drew David took over uh after that so um. yeah i i knew that they would uh, been out at some point but i it's just hard to remember at this point in the season which game uh happened where you're only only trying to keep track of uh some detail about 249 teams or 248.5 yes especially when you're sitting here in week 14 it is a little bit difficult to remember what happened in week seven or what well, if- what month week seven is in that's kind of one thing that's great about the semifinals and the quarterfinal round is there are only eight teams you have to know, and now there are only four teams we have to know. And so you, obviously people who follow one team know that team intimately and, and do so all year, and there are things about that team that we don't necessarily pick up on until we get to this point. But I like when we get here and uh, we have some good idea, 
each team. We know the coaches. We know you know the defensive coordinator and their personalities and all that stuff. It gets. Uh, I really enjoy this part of the season. Soon it's going to be two teams. I'm going to start uh, creating my spotting charts for the broadcast. Woohoo! Are we that close? Wow. I mean, you know, basically, I'm not going to start creating four of them, but it's getting there. Stag Bowl game time coming. Uh, that's a December 15th. That's a Friday night game at 7 p.m. So uh, we will have, of course, a broadcast of that. Keith will be doing it for the 19th consecutive year here for D3Football.com. Um, there have been some memorable ones. There have been. Uh, some of them involving some of the teams that possibly will be there unless we get a – well, yeah, they are definitely going to have at least one repeat visitor because Oshkosh was there last season. Mount Union was there the season before and a bunch of times before that. Mary Harden Baylor has been twice, won it last season. And Brockport, this is the furthest they've been. And on the uh, off chance, they knock off the defending champions to go to the Stag Bowl. This will be the first East region team to make the Stag Bowl since Rowan. Yep, 99. Yeah, Rowan in 99. Uh, Last team to win it, I think, is Ithaca in 91. Um, But that was off top. So uh, forgive me if I'm incorrect. On that, uh, this is the last time it's in Salem, too, Pat. It is. And we could go through the whole run very easily without an East Region team winning in Salem whatsoever. Indeed, you're correct about 1991, and that was in Bradenton, Florida, back in the day. And uh, the the Stagwell is going to move to Shenandoah, Texas, for a couple of years, and then to Canton, Ohio, after that. And then the supposedly, I mean, not supposedly, possibly. It could come back to Salem if Salem wants to bid on it. Uh, I don't know. I'm just speculating now. But um, it's it's had a nice run in Salem. Uh, the, this, this year will be – is this 25 years? Yeah. 24. My this'll, math is terrible. This will be 25. 25 and out for Salem. So um, it, it's been a nice run. It's uh, It doesn't except – for, except for the year Bridgewater is there. And Bridgewater is about a couple hours up I-81 – from Salem. Salem's in the Roanoke Valley, southwestern part of Virginia. Uh, not quite to where, say, Virginia Tech would be, but it's uh, it, it's a city, big enough city, it has its own airport, you can fly right in before the game. Really hasn't been a huge crowd, uh, except for that year where they actually were turning people away when, uh, when Bridgewater was there. Some years more than others, Mount Union, very familiar with being there. Whitewater's fans got familiar with it, brought fan buses down from Wisconsin. If Oshkosh and Mary Harden Baylor make it back, or if Mary Harden Baylor is playing Mount Union, once your team and your fan base is familiar with Salem, it, it's a it's much uh, different, much more interesting the second time. So if your fans can get in, and, and it's of course on short notice, you won't know until Saturday whether you win, and you have to be there by the next Friday. But it's great. It's for some programs once in a lifetime, some programs once every other year or so. Um, it's a it's a big deal, especially if if your son is on the team and playing, or someone you know, or you know you whatever your dad's a coach, like whatever your c- connection is to D three, to get a chance to do it in Salem, it really never gets old, and and it, it's a really uh, big deal. Some days it's a, sometimes it's a cold deal, but it can be a, re- a really fun time for your school, especially to see it in the spotlight and then uh, DVR back home and, and go watch the ESPN broadcast when you get back. Uh, always, of course, syncing up the uh, d3football.com audio. But uh, I was hoping you had come through with that. I mean, just uh, we had that's a 
that's almost like an automatic now. It's uh, it you you tap the rubber rubber mallet on my knee, and that's the the reflex action. Although we've had some pretty good ESPN broadcasts of late too. Some some years it's been so bad that I can't even go back and watch those games, even entertaining games. I can't watch them because I can't stand to listen to them. But uh, lately, we haven't had as much of that. Well, it's just it's it's hard to, to parachute into D three uh, late in the season. For one game, you know, they, they kind of take a crash course in not just D3, but uh, in the teams and the names and stuff. And, there's, you know, it's just impossible to get everything right. Whereas we've been around this thing, we've been doing it since the preseason, offseason. Um, and then, of course, following the teams pretty closely in, in the postseason. And we'll even have a couple people traveling this week uh, on site in Belton and uh, in uh, Oshkosh. So, We'll be super familiar with not just the teams, but the the coaches, the characters, the players, the support staff. So, yeah, if you want that insight during the Stag Bowl, please do listen to us, join us. And, of course, Stag Bowl week doesn't come without some other bonuses that broadcast is the first time we hear the All-Americans. That is true. And also, Keith and I are fairly certain we are unlikely to refer to any school as Mary Harden Simmons. That's a pretty good one. The one I remember the most was calling it the OADC when <laughs> when Bridgewater was there, and they're from the ODAC. It's hosted by the ODAC, by the way, so they only say ODAC like 47 times uh, in the media guide. And when you're greeted there in Salem, uh, it's pretty hard to, to, to mispronounce it, but it's happened. Those are the things that are on the line coming up this weekend in the national semifinals. As Keith said, we'll have people out there. And we expect to, uh, you know, see some entertaining football as we get you ready for Stag Bowl 45. Yikes. That makes me feel old. 45 overall, 25 in Salem. And again, it's uh, it's moving to Texas for a couple years. So if you Texas folks happen to get there and want to see Virginia before you maybe have a chance to to see uh, one at home, uh, come on out. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 187 for the week of December 4th, 2017. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, we love it when you rate it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, you know, make up your podcast provider here. That's what helps other Division Three football fans and football fans in general find out about what we're doing here. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to Mary Harden Baylor and UW Oshkosh for putting their post-game news conferences online, whether live or recorded. That sort of thing enhances everybody's Division Three experience. And thanks also to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, and you can join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate active email address at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. Keep an eye out this week for more feature stories on the road to Salem. We're signing out four of them. Of course, the Gallardi Trophy finalists will be identified this week as well, and we'll be releasing the D3Football.com all-region teams. Uh, Voting is all in. It takes some time to tabulate and assemble four releases with a tiny 7.5-point type with names, so look for that either late Monday or sometime Tuesday. And as Keith mentioned uh, a minute ago, our All-America team will be part of the D3Football.com broadcast coverage of the Stag Bowl on December 15th. 
That is to say, our announcement of the All-America team. Although, once upon a time, we did have an All-American show up at the pregame tailgate, remember? I remember lots of people coming to the tailgate. Was that the Brett Page year? Was uh, he All-American? No, there was some... Who's... Uh, there was a... Oh, gosh. A lineman from Dickinson? That would be very specific, if that's correct. Man, I mean, you gotta you gotta clue me in when we're going that deep. <laughs> I didn't know I was know that one's coming. I didn't know I was going there until I mean, you can see it's not written in the rundown. We're 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 spitballing now, man. We're in this the weeds. Is the, this is the best part. <laughs> if you hang around, for, didn't we promise last week that if we did, uh, you know, some weeks you get nine minutes and some weeks you get nine seconds? Although I think that got cut out. Um, that there would be some rollout this week. I don't remember what we promised, but uh, we probably should have. Oh, well, I believe we promised rollout, so now we need to do some rollout. We have so, uh, we have a couple minutes left before we get to an hour. What do we want to talk about? Yeah, uh, broadcast. I'm not broadcast. Tailgating. Let's talk about tailgating. Actually, we should talk about tailgating. So we have been. Uh, we've heard that uh, Stone Station people might be coming back for the uh, 25th and out. Yeah, they. Uh, First of all, it'd be great to great way to send uh, send Salem out. But it, it the cool thing about Stone Station it originated at Bridgewater and it became uh, every a Stag Bowl tradition every year. And folks, at one point, we took a big picture and there were guys with uh, you know Austin and Christopher Newport and I have my Randolph Macon shirt and Wesley Wesley and uh, obviously Bridgewater because uh, they were, you know, that was uh, the, the originator. I think and Mount then, Union also, yeah. And then, yeah, you know, of course you have the two teams that are playing that day, guys stopping by. So it becomes a really, uh, really cool experience. And it was good to to see D3 be represented. They were all out here to cheer our teams on. We're all out here because we love college football in a little bit of a strange way, to be quite honest. We, you know, everybody at your jobs talking about Clemson and Georgia and whoever's in the college football playoff. And we're talking about uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, Brockport, Mountain Union and uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh. But we got just as much passion for it. That's one thing that I hope somehow can translate to Texas because one of the things is that so many people could come because it was a relatively short drive for a significant portion of Division Three. Yeah, and if Mary Harden-Baylor makes it one of the next two seasons or if Harden-Simmons or East Texas Baptist or somebody makes it, then um, there'll be a pretty nice crowd. And if not, the excuse will be, I'm going to try to get me some warm weather in the middle of December. I wouldn't mind warm weather in the middle of December. Yeah, that's true. That's one thing you tend not to get in Salem. Salem, it's a little bit of a uh, crapshoot. We've gotten snow. We've gotten fifty degree days, sixty degree days. You know, it could be either. Again, somewhere if there's an outtake reel, at the uh, elimination station's got to go on it. It's fine with me. Is that the you last can... track you think, or the first track? Oh man, that's a it's a warm up. No, 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 man. We get to a thrash metal. I was just going to say, it's both, I'm sorry, the answer we were looking for, it's both the last track and the first track. Mm, it's true, yes. 